invite you to stand now. Turn in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 8. Uh, also, keep a tab on Galatians 5. Uh, maybe stick your worship guide in there or something. We'll be coming back to that at the end. Going to be reading Hosea 8, 1 through 10, 15. It's a pretty big chunk here, so please bear with me. And pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel, a craftsman made. strangers from devouring. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the king and princes shall soon arrive because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my law by the ten thousands, it would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send the fire upon his cities, and it shall devour the strongholds. Rejoice not, O Israel, exalt not like the peoples. For you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved the prostitute wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. It shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please them. It shall be like the mortars read to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival? And on the day of the feast of the Lord. For behold, they are going away from destruction. But Egypt shall gather them, Memphis shall bury them, nettles shall possess their precious things of silver, thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come, 
the days of recompense that come, Israel shall know it. The prophet is poor. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fowler's snare is on. like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Trusted in your own way, 
and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. I shall not destroy that marble on the day of battle. Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be cut off. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there is a lot here of us. Us eyes to see, ears to hear, friends to obey, friends to see what you have for us. We believe wisdom is a secret from Magnus. Here's the reason we can pray. And what we do that is we see around it. The couple batteries loose in that box, I guess, in the This church was built 125 years ago, I'm guessing. All right, this is going to be really loud. So, James is going to have to turn this down, especially when I start yelling. Just kidding. Check, 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 check. All right, probably go down a little bit more. Still, still waiting. <laughs> All right. Well, there's a lot here. Uh, this is some heavy stuff. I read through uh, one commentary, the whole three chapters worth. It was very long. And uh, there are many difficult things in these three chapters. I think it would be hard to do an individual sermon just on each chapter. If you were going to dive into all the, the things, there are some geographical questions. There are some historical questions. There are some interpretive questions that are really difficult. Uh, we do not have time uh, to get into all that and uh, would love to, to mention some of those things, but just for obviously the sake of time, we can't do that. But, but there's a lot here. Hosea 4.1 to the end of the book as we've mentioned, is really an explanation and an outworking of the parable in chapters one to three of God's prophet marrying an unfaithful woman. It's ultimately that we see that God's mercy and his steadfast love towards his people are great despite their idolatry and their whoring around with false gods and foreign nations. Uh, some difficult language, some difficult imagery, and it only kind of ramps up in these chapters. But we know that there is hope after judgment. There is restoration promised after judgment. So we know that. But I think we also need to sit in these judgment sections for a while. And we need to reflect on what the Lord is saying to his people and how those things might apply to us. Because as we've said several times, and we will continue to say, this is not just a word to ancient Israel in the midst of their idolatry and rebellion. It's not a time for us to point fingers and to say, how stupid could they be after all that God had done for them? After he had delivered them out of Egypt, how could they turn to idols? There are truths for us here today as the people of God. And these hard chapters in Hosea must be held up for us as a mirror to honestly examine our own lives before the Lord, both as individual Christians 
and corporately as the people of God, as the body of Christ. We must see how our own hearts are susceptible to these very same sins. So may God give us eyes to see and ears and hearts to receive his word today. A little bit of context. Uh, we've mentioned some of these things. If you have that handout that we handed out the first week, uh, some of those things are listed there, but kind of historically situating us the northern kingdom of Israel has been separated from the southern kingdom of Judah for almost 200 years now. The northern kingdom began under the reign of Jeroboam I. At the beginning of Hosea, Jeroboam II is mentioned. So uh, Hosea begins his prophetic ministry during the reign of Jeroboam II. But we have to go back to Jeroboam I, the beginning of the northern kingdom. Uh, he was the first king. So it's a little confusing. Jeroboam was the king in the northern kingdom. And Rehoboam, Solomon's son, was the king in the southern kingdom. So however you want to try to remember that, um, I haven't found any great ways yet to do that, but I'm sure there's some way. Anyways, Jeroboam, northern king. First uh, Kings 12, he sets up golden calves in the cities of Bethel and Dan. So we're going to see Bethel mentioned a bunch of times in these chapters. That's what's going on here. He set the golden calves up in Bethel and Dan so that the people in the northern kingdom wouldn't turn back to the house of David. That is the southern kingdom. And this is what Jeroboam said. He said, if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, the capital in the southern kingdom, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, if that sounds familiar, because that's the exact same thing that Aaron said in Exodus 32 when he made the original golden calf. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Right? And we shake our heads and go, you guys just saw the Egyptian army completely collapsed in the Red Sea. And right on the other side of that, you're building this golden calf and saying, this is our deliverance from Egypt. Like, what is wrong with you? We're going to see a lot of these themes of, of Egypt and the golden calf in our text today as well. A couple of verses later in 1 Kings 12, it says this. Jeroboam also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And he appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. Now, there are three major issues here that make up a good portion of the Lord's controversy. That's how chapter 4, verse 1 started. The Lord said he has a controversy with his people He's making this case against his people. Three major issues here that we see from the life of Jeroboam is false gods, the creation of false gods. He also created false feasts, and he appointed false priests who were not Levitical priests. So three major things, and we're actually going to see all three of those things mentioned here in chapters 8 through 10. So we're going to look at each of these chapters, and we're going to see how Israel's idolatry ultimately leads to their exile and to the end of the northern kingdom's existence. 
After two centuries of rebellion against God, Israel is finally going to reap what they have sown. Now, the end of each chapter here, 8, 9, and 10, contain a particular thing that will be destroyed in Israel because of their idolatry. We're going to highlight those things as we go, and then in the end, we're going to come back and see what we can learn from those things today. So if you're taking notes, there's not a a super clear structure uh, for taking notes, but we will be highlighting each of those things at the end of the chapters, and we'll be coming back to them. There are going to be a lot of scripture references as well, so you might want to just jot those down. Uh, so bear with me. Again, there's, there's a lot here. Let's dig in first to chapter 8. If you, see, if you have the ESV and you see the heading there, it says, Israel will reap the whirlwind. This sets the stage for what, for what we're going to see in these three chapters. There's a very heavy emphasis here on sowing and reaping and on the consequences of sin. Verses 1 to 3 here in chapter 8 are a summary statement of reasons for the coming judgment. It starts off with this declaration here, set the trumpet to your lips. If you look back at chapter 5, verse 8, we saw that same language. It said, blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, sound the alarm in Beth-Avon. This is a battle cry. This is a, a warning saying an opposing army is coming and bearing down on God's people. Set the trumpet to your lips. Warn. Look at ver the second line there. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. This is talking about Assyria. The Assyrian army is coming. They're about to conquer God's people. So there is this warning here. And then it says the reason for that warning. Because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. The first couple of sermons we looked at as we did the introduction to the prophets, we looked at how God's prophets were covenant enforcers. And James walked us, walked us through Leviticus 26, looking at the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. And we saw a lot of language about law and covenant, the people disobeying God, going against his law and breaking his covenant. So there's a reminder of that here. Then we see in verse 2, that the people cry to Israel. They say, my God, we Israel know you. And this is just flat out a lie, right? Because they don't know him. They don't, they don't acknowledge his law. They don't acknowledge his covenant. They're not worshiping him as the true God. So they don't know him. This indictment here then is followed by four more reasons for judgment throughout this chapter. In verse 4, it talks about them making kings and setting up princes for themselves. Look at that language again. But I knew it not. God did not know them. God did not recognize them. And this here is a direct violation of the Davidic covenant. God said that he would set a king on David's throne who would reign over his people forever. This is before the kingdom was divided. Right? There should not have been a king in the northern kingdom. There should have been one king in a united kingdom. But the results of people's sin... The people sinned. There was two kingdoms and there was two kings. God's saying, I'm not recognizing the kings in the northern kingdom. The second half of verse 4 through verse 6 speaks about idolatry. The calf of Samaria is listed there. God says, I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. There's going to be a lot more about this in chapter 10. If the kings were a violation of the Davidic covenant, this here is a violation of the Mosaic covenant. Shall it make any graven images? Right? That's what they're doing here. They're creating idols. They're creating these golden 
calves. Next thing we see in verses 9 to 10 is that they're seeking help from Assyria, from foreign nations. It says they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. God is saying, stop going to these foreign nations for help. They cannot deliver you. And then the last reason for judgment is seen here in verse 11. They have multiplied their altars for sinning. They have created these places that God has not told them to worship. They've created altars. They've created their own system of worship. And God says, I'm having, I will have none of it. Notice how God responds in verse 12 to all of this sinning. God says, were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. One commentator says about this, everything is upside down. Israel is dissolved into what is foreign and strange, so as to be indistinguishable as a people of God. Yet if God were to speak to them with volumes and volumes of revelation, they would reckon that revelation as foreign and strange. His word has become alien to them. Church of Jesus Christ, may this never be said of us. God has given us the volume of revelation that we need. He has given us his word. May this word not become alien to us. Well, we've seen these five reasons now for judgment here. Now let's look at some of the consequences, consequences or different features of God's judgment. We see a couple of them here in chapter 8, followed by four more in chapter 9. Verse 7, they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. This word here for whirlwind is used several times in scripture. There's one place where it's translated hurricane. We've seen in the last several years, especially the disastrous consequences, human earthly consequences of these hurricanes, how they destroy land, how they destroy so much property. And this here is highlighting the disastrous consequences of toying with sin. Just a little bit of wind, right? Just a little bit of sin. And then boom, you get hit by a hurricane. The point here is you can't just sow a little bit of sin, right? And say, oh, no big deal. It'll be okay. Just a little bit of wind. And then soon comes the whirlwind, the hurricane. Also, in verse 7 there, the standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. There's this desolation. There's this barrenness. The stalks are there, right? But there's nothing on the heads. Verse 8, Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. This picture of being devoured, of being cut off, of becoming useless. This is not what God's people were supposed to be living like. This is not how they were supposed to be representing God to the nations around them. Psalm 21 verses 9 to 10 speak of what God will do to his enemies with similar language. So the Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. 
You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from the children of man. Again, this was not supposed to be the fate of God's people. Yet it is because of what we see in verse 14. It's kind of our first main chapter ending here. For Israel has forgotten his maker. They didn't know him. They falsely claimed in verse 2 that they knew him. But they have forgotten him. They built palaces in Israel and Judah in the southern kingdom. They multiplied fortified cities. This is, although Hosea is here in the northern kingdom prophesying to, to Israel, this is also saying Judah is not walking with the Lord. Judah has judgment coming as well. So God says he will send fire upon the cities and it shall devour her strongholds. The, th the very things that they built with their own hands, the things that they thought would protect them from their enemies, God says, it's all going to be raised to the ground, right? It's all going to become rubble. That's the consequence. The first one. Now let's look at chapter nine, where we see four more consequences of the sins that were mentioned in chapter eight. The first thing is seen here in these first two sentences. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exalt not like the peoples. It's as if the Lord shows up here at one of their man-made festivals and says, Stop it. Stop worshiping me according to your own ideas. Stop making unauthorized sacrifices by unauthorized priests in unauthorized places. They had it all backwards. That's the emphasis in verses 1 to 6. They've done all this by their own will, by their own ideas. The second thing then, as we see in verses 7 through 9, is a loss of spiritual discernment. The prophet is now a fool. Meaning there's no direction, there's no word from the Lord to guide his people. Those who are speaking, claiming to speak on behalf of God are speaking falsely. This is a bad thing for God's people. The third thing is that they become like their idols. Look at the second half of verse 10. It says, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame. This is speaking about the golden calf and became detestable like the thing they loved. This was true of the nations. It had always been true of the nations. But again, this was not supposed to be true of God's people. Psalm 115 and Psalm 135 both have this uh, almost exact same verses in Psalm 115. It's verses four through eight. And it's, this is what it describes speaking of the nations and their idols. It says their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. And then what does the psalmist say after this indictment of the nations? Those who trust in idols, those who make them. He says those who make them will become like them. So do all who trust in him. Then what does he say? Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Israel, don't turn to idols. 
Don't make these things that can't speak and can't see and can't hear, can't interact with you, can't hear your prayers and answer your prayers. If you, Israel, do what the nations do, you will become like the idols that you have made. And we see that here in Hosea 10. They became detestable like the thing they loved. God's people are to trust in him, not in idols. To love him, not idols. To become more like him, not idols. This fourth and final consequence then is the most terrifying. In many ways, it is a total reversal of all the promises that God has made to his people since the Garden of Eden. From be fruitful and multiply, to the promises to Abraham of descendants like the grain of sands on the seashore, fruitful wombs and dominion over nations in order that God's blessing might reach more and more people. That was the ultimate goal. And now we see all of that reversed. Look at verse 11. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they were to bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. And the second half of verse 13, Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. A horrifying picture. Verse 14, give them, O Lord, what will you give them? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Verse 16, Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them, verse 17, because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. This is difficult stuff here. It's hard to read. It's hard to fathom this happening. But there are two things that are worth noting here. First, this is not the Lord being reactionary. He already told his people what would happen if they lived like this. Deuteronomy 28, which is the parallel passage to what James preached on in Leviticus 26, has the list of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. So Deuteronomy 28, beginning in verse 58, listen to what this says. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions. And then he lists several afflictions that he will bring upon them. And he continues in verse 62. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you so that the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off from the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Remember, again, this is in Deuteronomy. Before they even enter into the land, God is saying that if they do these things, after they possess the land, they're going to be taken out of the land again. Verse 64, and the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. 
And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. That's the exact description of what we see here in Hosea chapter 9, especially verse 17, where they are now godless and homeless. Again, this is not what God's people should be doing, right? This is not where they were supposed to be, but God had already promised and told them that these things would happen if they rebelled against him. Chapter 10 starts off with an apparent reversal of the metaphor. We've just seen all of this language about barrenness. Here, Israel is called a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. Kind of interesting. It's almost as if you're going to see a reversal of the barrenness in chapter 9. Actually, that's not the case. The increase of fruit actually just led to more idolatry and more judgment from the Lord, their king, whom they rejected. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. And then they reject God as being their king in verse 3. Verses 5 to 8 then describe the golden calf at Bethel. Uh, Bethel in Hebrew is, uh, the, is two words put together. Beth means house, and El is for God's name, Elohim. So Bethel means house of God. We see this word here uh, used. I, I think this was uh, perhaps last week or the week before. I, I didn't mention this, but we see this name Beth-Avon used here. This is being used um, kind of mockingly and sarcastically for Bethel. The word Avon means evil. So instead of house of God, uh, Hosea and God are calling Bethel, the place where God should have been worshipped, rightly, it's being called the house of evil. So it's kind of like this, like, in your face, this is what you're doing. This is what you're actually doing, Israel. That's what is happening here with this name, Beth-Avon. Speaks here of this calf, this golden calf. Uh, which will be, in verse 6, carried off to Assyria. Then we see in verse 7 that, or sorry, in verse, yeah, verse 7, the king shall perish. Verse 8, thorns and thistles shall grow up. This is clearly a reference to the fall in Genesis 3.18, where thorns and thistles will now be a part of the work of tilling the land. It will be a part of human existence now. And then we see at the end of verse 8, they will say to the mountains, cover us into the hills, fall on us. Jesus quoted this in Luke 23, 20, as he was being led away to be crucified. And after the sixth seal is opened in Revelation chapter 6, it says that the people will cry out for mountains and rocks to fall on them, and to hide them from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Again, this is not a pretty picture at all. This is heavy stuff. It's been five straight chapters here of doom in Hosea. Two straight weeks with almost no glimmer of hope. 
spoiler alert, next week we're finally going to see some hope. There's going to be a turn toward hope. Uh, there's only going to be one chapter next week. Chris is preaching, so I know he's saying hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. Uh, so we're only going to be looking at chapter 11 next week. So I encourage you sometime this week to go home and read that. If you're like overwhelmed by the darkness of the last five chapters, go read chapter 11. They're, don't read it right now. I know you want to read it. Don't read it. Listen, okay? Because <laughs> that's what I would want to do. <laughs> but I said two weeks with almost no glimmer of hope. But look at verse 12. It says, sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, the ground that is untilled, the ground that has not been used properly for years and years and years. For it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. This land that has been dry and barren, producing no fruit for the Lord. God says, sow righteousness, and you will reap steadfast love. Break that ground up. Seek the Lord, and God will come and rain righteousness upon you. He will give you what he alone can give. He will reverse what you have done for centuries, right? He will bring you back to himself. Seek him. This is not an empty promise. You might read this and say, well, they were going to go into exile anyway, so what's the big deal? It's not an empty promise. How could it be after what we saw in chapters 1 to 3? Hosea's pursuit of Gomer, his buying her back and welcoming her back home were a picture of God's love for Israel. Despite their sin, despite all the horrible things that they had done in their life, God would not utterly abandon them. God was not lying about his mercy and his steadfast love. Maybe you need to hear that truth today. Maybe you think, I've, I've spent too many years living in sin. I've spent too many years doing things my own way. The ground is just too hard. There's no way to get back to the Lord. And he says, seek me. Seek me and I will show you. I will come and I will, I will restore you. I will rain righteousness upon your dry land. That's the promise here. That's where hope is held out. Yet, unfortunately, verses 13 to 15 describe Israel's current reality. They are getting what they wanted and they are getting what they deserve. They are reaping what they have sown. Verse 13, they've plowed iniquity, they have reaped injustice, they've eaten the fruit of lies because they have trusted in their own way and in the multitude of their own warriors. We see all these things, there's going to be destruction of fortresses, uh, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. And this chapter ends with another horrible loss. In chapter 8, it was the loss of their cities and their strongholds. In chapter 9, they lost God and they lost their homeland. Now they are told that they will lose their king. All promises of a future hope here seem gone. 
But are they? We know how this is going to end, right? From this side of the cross, we've seen what God has done and what he continues to do as he builds this church by gathering people from every nation. So I want us to consider the tragic ending of each of these chapters. And finally, look on the bright side here. I want us to see how God has reversed these curses through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And then I want us to consider an application for us here today. So if, if this has been like overwhelming and a lot of information and a lot of like dates and like faraway stuff, here's where focus in. Okay. Here's where I'm going to, I'm going to bring it all home and wrap it up. So pay attention here. The end of chapter eight, we saw the destruction of cities, the things that the people trusted in to protect them. The end of chapter nine, we saw that they were rejected by God and the people were wanderers among the nations. How did God reverse that? There are two New Testament passages that speak very powerfully to God's reversal of these through Christ. Ephesians chapter two, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. It says, so then, if you are in Christ, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So there is that reversal, right, of, of the end of chapter nine. They're, they're no long, we are no longer rejected by God. We are no longer wanderers among the nations. Paul says we are no longer strangers and aliens. We are fellow citizens now with saints and members of the household of God. Now we're going to look at the reversal here of the end of chapter eight, the destruction of, of the cities and the strongholds. So we are members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. The people trusted in their own cities. They trusted in the temple that they had built with their own hands. They said, this is where God dwells. And he did for a time, right? But this now we see is not trusting in these physical structures, not trusting in these things that, that we have built with our own hands. God is going to dwell among his people by his spirit. We now are the dwelling place of God in Christ. That's the reversal of the curse at the end of chapter eight. Next, tying this together again, similar things, tying these two together. Hebrews chapter 11, 13 to 16. Speaking of those in the Old Testament who walked with God, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had no opportunity to return, or they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Notice that reversal of not being his people. Now they're his people. God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. 
Okay, we have a city prepared for us, the new Jerusalem, which will come down from heaven, new heavens and a new earth. It's not our hope in earthly cities like the people were hoping for in the Old Testament. Do you see the the horrifying ends of these chapters, of chapter 8 and chapter 9, being reversed in Christ? This is amazing. This is what is true of us if we are in Christ. The end of chapter 10 then ends with the king of Israel being utterly cut off. We're almost to Christmas time here where we will be reminded of the of the wise men's visit to to see Jesus. When Herod the king gathered the chief priests and the scribes and inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, then they quoted these words from Micah 5.2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. There was the promise of a coming king, the king who would come and who would rule and shepherd them, even though they would reject him, even though they would say, we have no king but Caesar, and would ultimately nail him to a cross. But the good news is that he wouldn't stay dead. He would rise from the grave and ascend into heaven, and he would send his spirit to live inside of his people so that they would know him and follow him and hear his voice so that they would bow down to him and allow him to reign as the rightful king in their lives. That's what Jesus has done to reverse the curses at the end of Hosea 8, 9, and 10. So now a few application questions for us. If you are here today and you are a follower of Jesus, then these things ought to be true of you. If you are not yet a Christian, then we hope that you would see your need for Jesus, that you would turn away from your sins, and that you would turn to him in faith. First question from chapter 8. Have we forgotten our maker? Do we know him? Will we say to him, Lord, Lord, only to hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you. Second question, are we listening to him and not wandering? Are we listening to him and not wandering? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Do we? Do we hear his voice? Do we listen to his voice speaking through his word? And do we follow him? Third question from chapter 10. Have we stepped off of our own thrones and surrendered our own kingdoms over to the rule of the only true king? Have we stepped off of our own thrones and surrendered our own kingdoms over to the rule of the only true king? These are some probing questions. These are some difficult questions for us to consider. Don't just think about it here for a couple of minutes in your head. Go home, spend some time this week thinking through these questions, through these different elements of your relationship with the Lord. There is a practical 
there's some practical help for us to examine our lives and to think about what we are sowing and what we are reaping. If you would turn now to Galatians chapter 5. This passage offers some great help for us. Galatians 5.16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, sensuality, idolatry sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is a great passage for us to consider. Maybe as you take some time this week to think through these questions, this is a great passage to consider as we do some individual self-reflection. How are we walking? Are we walking by the spirit or are we walking by the flesh? What kind of fruit are we bearing? Are we bearing fruit from the spirit or fruit from the flesh? And then where is there room for growth in our lives? Ask God to show you how you can grow in these areas. Now I want us to notice how the rest of the passage emphasizes the one another's. Meaning this is not just an individual exercise. We don't just leave here and, and go home and do some self-examination and kind of live in our own little bubble all week, right? This has a profound impact on the health and the mission of the body of Christ. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those 
who are of the household of faith. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God has graciously poured out his spirit in our lives. Let us walk by the spirit and keep in step with the spirit as we seek to put to death the works of the flesh. Let us know, love, and serve one another as we bear spirit-filled fruit for God. And let us know, love, and serve Jesus, our great shepherd king, and listen to his voice and acknowledge his rule and reign in our lives. Amen. Let us pray. God, we thank you what you have done for us, that you have shown mercy to your people when we did not deserve mercy. God, you have reigned your righteousness upon us by faith, giving us the very righteousness of Christ. And God, now you call us in light of that work, in light of that work of of mercy and grace and saving us from our sin. You call us to walk with you, to walk by the spirit, to not gratify the flesh. God, we all have an individual responsibility to do that and a corporate responsibility to bear with one another, to encourage one another, to come alongside one another. Father, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit as we seek to do this. Give us wisdom. God, give us boldness to love one another well, to serve one another, to point one another to Christ. And God, may you be honored and glorified in all of these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.